0: And the text is chapter 6 of the book of Acts. Verse 7 of chapter 6, And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What a word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel." I said this morning that uh, this sermon was dedicated to those who live under pressure, just a few of you perhaps. Uh, no, I suppose that, um, that our time, this day in which we live, has made pressure a lifestyle. Not long ago a man died at the age of 72 who lived under the most unbelievable and pressure that anyone has ever known. He chose a vocation that few people have ever chosen. And for 58 years he lived on the tight wire of tremendous pressure. Um, At the age of 30, he was the most proficient in his profession, he was famous, born in Germany. His name was Karl. And he experienced in his lifetime the extremes of emotions. He knew the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory. He knew the very heights of ecstasy in the very depths of despair. He was a tremendous man in his field, so winsome that he got his family to join his profession. And he was so good that P.T. Barnum brought him to America and made him famous. His family became known as the Great Walendas. He was a tight wire performer, a high wire performer. He not only walked the high wire, but he did handstands on it and headstands and everything he did on the high wire. He used no net. He wasn't content to have just to be on the tight wire himself. He got four other people on the tight wire with him and they had a pole. And on top of the pole were two other people and on, holding a pole. And on that pole was a woman sitting in a chair. It was the only time anybody ever performed a pyramid without a net and they went through some tremendous things with unscathed, without harm. One night they were performing and the tent caught on fire. They didn't fall. One night in the dead of night, a strange electrical failure happened and plunged them into total darkness in the midst of the pyramid without a net and they didn't fall. In 1962, tragedy struck they fell. Two of them died. uh, Mario, their adopted son, was paralyzed from the waist down. Carl broke his pelvis. The next night, with a broken pelvis, he was back on the high wire. Two years later, there was another fall and another death in Omaha, Nebraska. Nine years later, there was another fall and another death. And a few years ago, a couple of years ago, Carl fell to his death. And even though he's dead, his words live on. He said, quote, people don't come to see me die. People come to see a man who has the guts to face life. And perhaps my courage will help someone else have the guts to stand the pressure. And maybe that's why the good Lord keeps me alive, end quote. There's another man tonight who is the hero, my hero in the New Testament. He's a man who lived on the high wire of pressure. His name was Stephen. All of a sudden he just emerges out of the text, out of the scripture, in the book of Acts, in the city of Jerusalem. His name just pops on the surface there and it says that Stephen was a man full of faith. My, word, my eyes fell on the word full before it fell on the word faith. He was a man who lived on the high wire faith. He lived on the raw edge of faith. He refused to live his life out on the ground. He didn't have to see it to believe it. He lived and acted as though It were an accomplished fact he lived by faith on the high wire of pressure. And I suppose that the reason why he's there is that God gave us his life in order that we might from it gain the courage to live under pressure. Now before we look at Stephen, we need to look at the context of his life. If this man emerges on the scene, and all of a sudden, we see him. We see him in the context of the church. That's a, that's a significant factor. And there's a general state of the church that, that is present in Jerusalem at that time that gives birth to men like Stephen. Um, sometime when I'm, in, you know, in my best moments, in my best hours in prayer, I always thank God for the church um, that, I, uh, that I had the privilege of uh, uh, knowing when I was a young boy, a child, one of the greatest churches that, you know, that's, uh, that, I, that I know, and I can't help but, uh, you know, remember from time to time to be thankful for this tremendous church that gave me birth as far as the kingdom of God is concerned and nurtured me, and if I am anything, It is largely due to the people of that church. And there's a certain kind of church that just gives birth to men like Stephen and nurtures them. And these men just emerge on the scene on the high wire of pressure with great faith and courage that come out of these kinds of churches. What are these kinds of churches? What 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 is the general state of the church? Number one. On your worksheet. It was not perfect, but it was sensitive. The first implication we have of Stephen is that he was one of the seven chosen as a deacon. And that that choice of, of Stephen as a deacon emerges out of a need that had arisen in the church. We talked about it last Sunday night. Now the church is not perfect in Jerusalem. There are a lot of imperfections, but it was sensitive. And I want you to know that, that you can put up with a lot of imperfection in the church as long as you know that church is sensitive to human need. And the sensitivity of a church to the needs of people will cover a multitude of sins. It's when the church is not sensitive to its people and to the people around it that it loses its credibility and its impact as a message, a messenger. It wasn't perfect, but it was sensitive. Secondly. The church was not worldwide, but it was growing. Notice in verse 7, that the church was winning people. Disciples were coming to the kingdom and to the church, but all of them in Jerusalem. It was not worldwide, but it was growing. It was reaching its own community. And that says something about a church. A church is to have a world vision, but that church also is responsible to its own community, to its own need, to its own neighborhood. And sometimes it's easier to win somebody on the other side of the world than it is to win somebody on the other side of the street. And sometimes it's easier to witness on the streets of Philadelphia than it is to witness in the halls of Durant High. Isn't that true? The greatness of this church was that it was sensitive and it was sensitive to its own environment, to its own community. It was reaching its own people. It was growing. Third, It was not endorsed, but it was effective. If you found somebody on the street corner in Jerusalem and you asked them, what about this church that's just exploded and these thousands of people who belong down there to that church? What about that church? Probably most of the people that you talked to would have said, well, those folks are different for sure. And the difference that was taking place in the church at Jerusalem was that the life of Jesus Christ was moving in their midst. The life of Jesus Christ was strong and vital, and that made a difference. For the deadness and the formality of the Jewish religion had just about stalemated the city of Jerusalem until the church came with the vibrant body of Christ. And I'm convinced that the church is really not the church until the life of Jesus is lived vibrant and vital among us. Now on verse 8, I want you to write these words. Zoom lens. That's right, zoom lens. Because we're just going to draw the zoom lens on in on Stephen, and we're going to focus on him. And you write the word zoom lens on there, and next year when you come down through there reading the Bible through again, that'll shock you. <laughs> zoom lens. For any time God stops the sweeping delivery of records and events and focuses on one man, you better take note, something important about to happen with that man. And any time you see in the scriptures, you watch this, any time you see in the scriptures God struggling to preserve the epitaph of a man among millions, that man is pretty special, you better take note. And so the lens zooms in on this man, Stephen, who emerges in our text. Look at his name. We're following the outline. The name is Stephanos in the Greek. And it means wreath or crown. There are two Greek words for crown. One is the Greek word diadema. Bring forth the royal diadem. The diadema. And in the book of Revelation, that crown, the diadema, is the crown that is only for God the sovereign. He wears that diadema. And it's significant that we sing and we preach about the fact that he deserves the glory, the diadema, he deserves to be crowned. The other word for crown in the Greek is the word stephanos. And it means great achievement. It was that crown placed on the winner of the athletic, the Olympic Games. It was just a little wreath woven out of olive branch. And it was placed on the head at at the bema. It was placed on the head of the winner of the athletic event, of the Olympic Games. And it signified great achievement. It was victorious, the victory crown. It's that crown we'll all receive when we get to heaven crown of righteousness. And when these great athletes succeeded in winning the Olympic Games, the, the city where they were from would take and blast a hole in the city wall and put a plaque up there for them. And they, and they educated the children of these athletes who won the Olympic Games, they educated their children for the rest of their life. And they exempt the winner of the athletic event from paying taxes, oh for the good old days. It was a great and glorious achievement, accomplishment And I don't know, perhaps, maybe Stephen's mother, when she gave birth to this young boy, this child, might have been impressed of God to call him Stephanos, knowing that one day he would win that great achievement, and that great achievement was that under pressure he stood for God. That's the greatest accomplishment anyone will ever have in life. I have a a strong notion but when we stand before God, He'll not ask us, you know, He'll not judge us on the basis of how much money we gave to the church or how many times we went to prayer meeting. I think He'll judge us on our faithfulness in pressure situations. Look at His reputation. The scripture says that He was full of grace and power. He has a balanced life. He, he lives a balanced life. He's not full of power only. That would have made Him stubborn and narrow. He was not full of grace only. That would have made him a pushover. He was full of grace and power. He was both gracious and powerful. They're compatible. It is possible for you to be gracious and powerful at the same time. As a matter of fact, the greatest people alive are the people who have been able to combine both qualities. They are strong and they are gracious. They are tough and they are tender. And the scripture said that he was doing mighty miracles, verse 8, he kept on doing wonders and signs which authenticated him as a messenger of God. Now look at verse 9, and there's that word that just keeps raising its head up, but. Now, it seems to me that, uh, that, that the pressure begins. Now watch this, gang. It seems to me that here is a man that is, that is a kind of a special person, full of grace and power, Stephanos, the victorious one. And it seems that because he's doing mighty wonders and signs and he kept on doing them, that, 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 that people would have just rejoiced in that, but not so. There was the synagogue of the freedmen. In the city of Jerusalem there were, there were many synagogues, at least two. One of them was the synagogue of the freedmen. That meant Jews who had been slaves and had been set free. And they came together to form their own synagogue where they came together to study and to worship. Synagogue of the freedmen. And these men became uh, disturbed by the life of this man, Stephen, full of grace and power. He bothered them. It says that of this synagogue of freedmen, there was some from Cilicia. Do you know anybody from Cilicia? Well, Tarsus is in Cilicia. I'm absolutely convinced that the leader of the synagogue of the freedmen was Saul of Tarsus. Now you begin to watch now as the screws tighten down, as the rope tightens down on this man, Stephen. For in this synagogue of the freedmen, vehemently opposed to Stephanos, This man of God is this brilliant scholar by the name of Saul of Tarsus, the heir apparent to Gamaliel himself. And there are three ways in which they brought pressure to bear on this man. First of all, by argumentation, verse 9. And the word means bickering and clashing. Uh, Does that sound familiar? Does that take place where you are, maybe in your home or in your work, bickering and clashing and arguing, there was this personality conflict, this clash with Stephanos. But the Scripture says in verse 10, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with, by which he was speaking. I want you to just take your New Testament and turn to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke, And look at verse 12. Hold your place there in uh, Acts because we're not finished with that yet. And just look at verse 12 of chapter 21. It's amazing how one book of the Bible is a commentary on the other. Verse 12, Luke 21. But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Um, every day nearly I see a car go by, it has this bumper sticker that says, ask me about my grandchildren. I wouldn't dare do that. I don't, I don't have the time, you know, to... Uh, you know, to to be involved in that. But what that sign, that bumper sticker is saying is just give me an opportunity and I'll tell you about my grandkids. That's the whole idea of the Christian faith. If a man is sensitive, if he is aware, if he's ready to share his testimony, there'll be a hundred times a day he'll be able to share that testimony. Um, a friend of mine was telling me not long ago, she said, I just got under the burden. You know, I, 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 she's a housewife. She doesn't have that much time to, to visit with the church, etc. She said, I just began to pray that God will give me a divine appointment. She said, I just really pray and God will give me a divine appointment. My quiet time in the morning, I was praying God give me a divine appointment. But about the time I was in the middle of that prayer, somebody knocked on the door. And she said, "I went to the door, and this guy trying to sell roofing. He wanted to do some roofing. Notice that her roof might need a." Uh, and she said, "It just dawned on me while he was trying to sell me a roof, there was my divine appointment." If you're ready to give your testimony, you give that testimony, every five minutes you'll have an opportunity to do that, even under the most difficult circumstances. He said it'll lead to an opportunity to give your testimony. Notice this, So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Now you know how why Stephen was able to, to stand there in the presence of Saul of Tarsus, this man schooled in the scripture, the Old Testament law and the prophets. And they could do nothing about his witness. They could say nothing to refute his testimony because he was speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now let me tell you something. When a person, wherever he is, whatever he's doing, wherever he is, whether it's in visitation on EE or whether he's in school, if he's living the Spirit-filled life and he's standing and speaking for God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is, it is, it is irrefutable. The second thing they brought to pressure to bear was they brought false accusation in verse 11. It says that they secretly induced people, bringing them under control, maybe payoffs or whatever, to to bring false accusations against them. Listen to these words. You don't have to look them up. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so persecuted the prophets before you. And verse 12 says that the third thing they did in the synagogue to bring pressure is physical violence. Did you read uh, The Hiding Place or see that movie? And there was old Papa Tim Boom. They, brought him. they went to his clock shop there in Holland. Just a gentle, loving man. And they took him out and hauled him away, and nobody saw him again. I don't understand that kind of a thing. I don't understand how people in the synagogues of the land can do violence to one another. I, I don't know how. I don't. I don't understand how people in the church can do violence to one another. Oh, not physical violence, but with these words. Some of the most abusive things I have ever heard, I've heard in a church context. It was said of Stonewall Jackson that one day while they were preparing to go into battle, some of the men were bickering back and forth about, their their attempts at battle. And Stonewall Jackson said, Remember, men, the enemy's over there. I've read that the Reformers took the Anabaptists out and drowned them just because they insisted that baptism was for believers only. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but Luther piled such vulgarity upon Zwingli that Shaft. The historian said, I couldn't translate its meaning from German into decent English. And every time I pick up the Baptist Messenger, I read some of the most vitriolic words that people direct to one another in the church. And there are some universities and seminaries and schools that just glory in the battles they wage with one another. I don't understand that a bit. It seems to me that if there is a place where love ought to be demonstrated and expressed, it ought to be in the synagogues of, of God. And then the Sanhedrin took over in verse 13 and 14. I'm going to give you those and I'll quit. The fourth area of pressure was brought to bear by exaggeration. Verse 13, they said, this man incessantly speaks. Why, well, that's not true. That's an exaggeration. You guilty of that tactic? Lots of folks are saying, well, who's the lots of folks? You know, they said, well, who's who are they? You know, um, boy, there's a lot of people that really, you know, you know guys told me the other day, they said, man, there's a lot of people that are really opposed to this or that. Well, who are a lot of people? Maybe one or two. Exaggeration puts a lot of pressure. Misrepresentation of the truth, verse 14, he didn't say that. I want you to look at verse 15, for there's the picture of a man under pressure, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And Tennyson said, the glory of God smote him on the face, And another one said, someone else said, you don't have to have a palm reading medium to determine what a man's life is like. Just look at his face. And on his countenance and in his face was the aura of an angel. And that's what happened to a man under pressure. And when I read it, it just gives me guts to face life myself. Now there are two things to live by tonight. they are not much comfort, but I want to give you those and we'll write them down and then we're through. There are two things to live on, two things to live by, two principles to know. Now this is not much comfort, but it's the truth. Number one, when you walk with Christ, the public will resent it and not support it. Took me a long time to come to that, to understand that. When you walk with Christ, the public will resent it and not support it. Principle number two. When you are the most, young people hear this, when you are the most like Christ, the pressure will increase and not decrease. The more you get like Jesus, the more pressure you're going to be under. The more you're going to get out on the tight wire without a net. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the inspiration of this man who lived for God in difficult times. And may the inspiration of his life and the courage of his faith be an inspiration and a source of strength for us who live daily under the pressure of a hostile and unbelieving world. I pray this in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. You're dismissed.